All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. Like I said just before we started the recording just now, um, my Lord willing, we will finish this section tonight so we can move on to the next section. But I'm pretty excited about what Paul has to say here. So we're Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And he, meaning God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, last week we just stayed right there in verse 12. We're going to move on starting in verse 13 tonight and look at what it starts with. It starts with that word until. And I put in, in, in my notes here, look at how Paul describes the length of time that it will take for the preacher teachers and the bodies working together to accomplish its purpose. Until we all reach unity of the faith or attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, that looks pretty daunting, doesn't it? I'm going to encourage you tonight with relax. It's not as scary as it appears at first glance. First of all, let's pull a couple of deep truths out of here first that actually once you see them, they're simple. The word until until shows us that there it shows us a couple of things. So the first thing is this. We're not there yet. Right. So relax. God doesn't expect us to be there yet. That's why he says until we get to there, until shows us you're not there. Second thing, though, is the word until shows us that God is expecting movement toward what the until is referring to. There needs to be forward progress. And that's going to be very important. Keep that in your mind, because later on, as we deal with the definition, the biblical definition of maturity, that'll help you a lot. But you're moving toward what the until is referring to. Now, according to this passage, what are we to be heading to? Now it's a question. I'm going to open it up to you. Maturity. We're to be heading to unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and maturity. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit uh, tonight. Um, before you get intimidated, though, with this whole picture of the fullness of Christ, let me remind you that actually what we're looking at here that we've been kind of, I don't want to say bogged down on, but, but stuck in or spending a lot of time unpacking for the last few weeks is actually a description of the specifics of something that Paul had already prayed for us in our previous part of the study. Go with me back to Ephesians chapter 3 and look at verses 13 and following. 13, sorry, 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul, remember we looked at this, said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with what? All the fullness of God. So when he's talking about it, until we all move to a unity in the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God, a mature manhood, to the fullness of Christ, this is actually what he'd already been praying for, for us all. So this is what we need to be moving towards. But I want to, again, relax you a little bit. This is where, unfortunately, the preachers have tried to help God do what only God can do. By the way, some of you that have gotten my book and, and, I, and had the privilege of signing my name in there, you'll notice... That if you compare what I, scripture I left in your book with somebody else's, I left the exact same scripture verse in every single book. And there's a reason. Has anybody gone and looked at that scripture verse yet that I wrote down in the cover of your book? Yep. Does anybody know what it says? It's, it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 that says, May God himself direct you into his love and into the steadfastness or the patience of Christ. And as I prayed, knowing that there were going to be people who were going to want me to sign the book and typically preacher will leave a scripture verse, I, I prayed hard, Lord, 
And he showed me, look, Jim, I want you to be reminding them that it's me who moves them into my love. It's me who moves them into the fullness or understanding of my patience and steadfastness. For too long, we have heard the partial part of the preaching, and then the preacher has then taken over from there and said, here's where you need to go work. And as I said to you last time, you're not going to find what we have honored and we have We've commended over the years. We have honored and commended hard work, duty, commitment, faithfulness. Isn't that all the stuff that we were told? But actually, if you look at the scriptures, the scripture just talks about dependence on God and just doing what it is he says. Paul, even in Colossians chapter 1, I think it's around verse 27, says this. I labor. Oh, there we go. No, no, listen to the rest of it. I labor with all his energy, which so powerfully works through me. It's not about your hard work. It's not about your diligence. It's not about your duty. You've heard me say this before. We'll have a, a banquet for a, a deacon who has been faithful for 50 years. He was a grumpy old curmudgeon and did nothing by faith, but he was faithful. And we think that is what we're going to honor. And God says that's the flesh when it's done in your own strength and in your own effort. It accounts for nothing before God. So as we talk about moving into the fullness of Christ, you're not going to hear me say, now you need to. You're going to hear me say, put your eyes on him. Believe that he will do what he said he will do. And Walk in obedience to what he says and watch how you become more of what he wants you to become. The moment you start trying to help him. Oh, and how many of us have been taught and how many you'll catch yourself doing that. Lord, help me to. You ever you ever, you ever heard those prayers? He doesn't want to help you. He wants to do it. He doesn't want to help you. He wants to do it. So keep in mind, this is what Paul's been praying for now. What does this maturity look like? It's described as unity in the faith and unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, we got to stop for a second and clarify this word unity. This doesn't mean that we'll all agree. So you hear unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and you have a picture of everybody all seeing it the same way. But do you know the Bible says that we're not going to all see it the same way? There are the, the things that are the, the essentials of the faith. But... Beyond that, Paul says in Romans 14, some are going to see it this way and some are going to see this day more baker than another. And some are going to think eating vegetables is the only way to go. And others are going to think eating meat's OK. What does Paul say? Each needs to be fully convinced in his own mind. And don't you look down or judge your brother who sees it differently than you. And don't let you let your brother talk bad about the things that you believe God's given you the peace and the freedom to do. There's going to be this balance of working together when we all don't see it the same way. Folks, I know if we actually sit down, as much as we love being together, as much as I love every one of you, if we took the time to sit down and talk theology, guess what? We wouldn't all agree. But there's a unity in this body that comes together on Tuesday nights from so many different churches. You know why? Because we're focusing on what's the most important thing and we're putting our eyes on Jesus and we're seeking to have him speak to us. And God's developing relationships among you all as we work together to see what it is that God has us do. We're not going to all see it again. Uh, sorry, see it the same way. Unity does not mean we all see it the same way. Unity means we work together because of Christ. Now, at the same time, don't miss this. Disunity among believers is a sign of immaturity then, is it not? Uh, if the Bible says that we move toward maturity and maturity looks like unity in the faith, us being willing to work together, even though we might not see it the same way, disunity has to be, and it is, a sign of immaturity. Let me show you. Put a bookmark here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verses 10 and 11. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you that all of you agree. This doesn't mean you all see it the same way. This is not what he's talking about. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So here and we're going to go a little bit further in First Corinthians and see Paul deal with it a little bit more. Here, Paul, is in the very beginning of this book and letter to the Corinthians, is saying, I've gotten word that there's actually division among you. If you were to go on further, you would start to say, you see what that division was about. Some say, well, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Peter. Others say, I follow, you know, Apollos. 
And that's going to be important when we get to the end of our study tonight. You're going to see how that's a danger in putting your eyes on a man. Okay, but at the same time, he says, I see that there's divisions among you. Go to first Corinthians chapter 11 and he says a little bit more about it. Was the division that they didn't see it the same way or was the division in how they treated each other in not seeing it the same way? It's how they treated each other. First Corinthians chapter 11, look at verses 17 through 19. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, Paul, as he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's a very interesting thing that he says here. He says, hey, I see divisions. I hear that there's divisions and that shouldn't be. At the same time, he then goes and says, well, in one sense, I can understand how there would be division because that's going to show us who is genuine or who's really in walking in Christ. What's he saying? Help me out here. What do you think he's saying here? That's it. How we treat each other in our disagreements will say a whole lot more as to who might be on the right side of the disagreement. Do you understand what I'm saying? One thing I have always taught is I dealt with pastors and I deal with churches and I deal with a lot of churches that are in struggle and I go and try to help walk them through putting their eyes back on God and getting things turned around. And one of the things I tell pastors is, especially as they're dealing with some can, can, can I say it, cantankerous church members, I say to them, the spirit with which they combat you will tell you a whole lot as to who's actually talking. You understand what I'm saying? We are to sometimes be angry in righteousness. It's how we treat each other in those times we don't see things the same, which will give a greater emphasis or, or an understanding, if you will, as to who really is walking in the spirit and who's not. And that's why he says, I hear there's divisions among you. And actually, if you do a little study on this, you'll find that when they were coming together for the Lord's Supper, they weren't even waiting for each other. The rich people didn't want to share their food with the poor people. And there was divisions in how they treated each other. And Paul also made a little hint there. And he said, well, actually, I can understand that there would be some divisions because that'll show us who's really walking in Christ and who's not. But again, the division issue is not the fact that we all are supposed to see things the same. The division issue is over how we treat each other when those times arise. Um, husbands and wives, do you always agree? <laughs> Ron shook his head with a big scared look on his face. Yes, yes, yes. She says we, she says we do. <laughs> no, listen, I, I, I think it was Billy Graham's wife who said it, and if it wasn't her, I apologize for putting words in her mouth, but she's in heaven and she don't care. But um, she said, if, if a husband and wife, if two people always agree, one of them is unnecessary. Actually, you're going to find that God makes opposites attract and he does it for his purposes of shaping us and molding us. It's how we treat each other in those times that we don't see it the same, which will give a whole lot more evidence as to whether or not we're walking in love or in the spirit. The division issue is not that one sees it this way and one sees it that way. That's going to happen. How do you deal with it when you do? So when it talks about moving toward unity in the faith, Please don't read that as we all see it the same way. And therefore, if you don't see it like I see it, I can't have unity with you. No, no, no. That's not what it's talking. It's not saying unison. It's talking unity. All right. Now, and it's also talking about the knowledge of God. And um, the second thing, though, I want to bring out from back to Ephesians chapter four. Another evidence of maturity is no longer children. Now, again, we got to clarify the term children because We'll always be the children of God. And Jesus tells us to come to him as a child. But this reference to being children here isn't talking about it in that sense. It's talking about it in the sense of immaturity. And so I want to bring some scriptures out to you that deal with this. Um, but you see here again, go back to Ephesians 4 real quick. And then we're going to jump back to 1 Corinthians. In verse 14, he says, and when he talks about how we, until we reach this level of maturity, the fullness, stature, stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then he goes on, describes it as human cunning and deceitful schemes. We'll come back to that in a little. But look at how he says, so that we'll no longer be children. Again, he's not saying that we're not going to no longer be the child of God. We'll always be the child of God. We're going to be co-heirs with Christ for eternity. 
One of the evidences that we have his spirit is that his children follow him. That we're not talking about children in that sense. But go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and you'll see how Paul clarifies that. In dealing with this church that had divisions, and some of your Bibles have a heading right above chapter 3 that says divisions in the church. Look at chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 3 and how he described it. He said, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as what? Infants or babes in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, now we get a little more clarity about these divisions. It wasn't the fact that they didn't see it the same. It was how they were treating each other in the, in, in the disagreements. There is jealousy and strife, strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And then again, he goes on and says, when one says, I follow Paul, and one says, I follow this guy. But again, how does Paul describe their dividing themselves up and setting up themselves in jealousy and strife? He said, you're acting like children. You're acting like children. Go a little bit further. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Look at verses 19 and 20. As Paul was dealing with them, being duped into thinking that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved, he makes this amazing statement. He says in verse 19, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. you, you you've regressed. You, you went back to sucking your thumb. I thought you were done with that. I thought we had moved on. But the fact that you got duped to believe this false teaching shows me you hadn't moved on to maturity yet. You went backwards. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. And this, I love how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians 13. Verses 8 through 12. Second half of verse 8. The first part of verse 8 ends that section where love is patient and kind, and it ends with love never ends. But look at the second half of verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. As for prophecies, Paul says, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. And when I became, sorry, I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now let me put on a couple of things from this. When is the then? When is the then that he's referring to? When is the perfection coming? On the other side, when, we, when we're glorified. It's obvious in the context here that what he's referring to is one day when we get to heaven, it'll all be clear. Right now, we see, but kind of dimly. And let's be honest. That's part of how God's designed it. Why? What's he looking for? He's looking for us to figure it out. Is he going to reward those who are the smartest, who have the most uh, seminary training, the ones who are able to, to learn more than others? No, he's looking for those who have childlike faith, but not in the bad sense of immaturity, but a, a willingness to just say, God, I don't even fully understand it. But what I have had revealed, I do trust. You love me. You've proven it. You're a great God. You've risen from the dead. I've given you my life. You died for my sins. I don't understand all that other stuff, but this much I know, and I trust you. Abraham. All, but see, but look at what he's saying here. One day perfection comes. And oh, by the way, there are some people that try to take this passage and say certain things have ceased. No, he's saying, look, when we get to heaven, you won't need preachers anymore. You won't need all this other stuff when we get there. When the perfect comes, when the perfect comes, what were you saying? You need painters? Is that what you're about to say? Yeah, I know where you're going. I know where you're going, you rascal. But, uh, but when perfect comes, he said, we won't need those things. It's not saying that they have ceased. Now, at the same time, keep this in mind. He also then brought out this illustration. He said, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child, but I grew up. And when I became a man, I put away childish things. What's he saying? 
I'm moving forward. That's so important because we've got to go some, to something, a definition of maturity that I want you to lock in your brain. Because in our minds, we see maturity as, well, this person's more mature than this one. I'm going to show you a biblical definition that will put maturity all on the same level. Now you say, well, how can that be? How can we move on to maturity if it's all the same level? I'll show you in just a second. But keep in mind what Paul just said. When I was a kid, I thought like a kid, acted like a kid, all that. But and when I became a man, because that's a part of moving forward, remember? Moving forward. The until is moving towards progression. I put those things away. I'm moving forward. He's writing to a group of Christians that are still stuck acting like kids. Well, where does a childlike faith come in? Well, that's the whole point. You're going to see that that's the childlike faith continues. You can actually move into maturity, keeping the childlike faith. I believe that as you move into maturity in your relationship with Christ, your faith becomes childlike. Yes. I'll be honest with you. That's a great point. We really don't have time to even chase that. But you're right. What she just said was, as you move into maturity in following Christ, your faith becomes more childlike. I actually read a little booklet, uh, a little journal uh, uh, devotional by Vance Habner tonight before I came. And, and he was talking about those who spend all their time measuring their faith and studying about faith. He said the people that he've come to realize over the years that have the most faith don't even talk about it. They just trust. And if you ask them to measure it, they probably couldn't. They just trust him. We get all caught up into measuring our faith. I don't want you measuring your maturity. I'm just asking you a simple question. Are you moving forward? Go to Philippians chapter 3 and look at how Paul describes it there. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 16. Paul just listed all the hard work. I, I, I have to go back. Go to Philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 1. I have to kind of set the stage for this because it ties to what I said earlier. Finally, my brothers, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. I, to, write, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. This is a reminder, Paul says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And that's our effort. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Listen to what he described as his flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, as you know, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, the highest level, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, if anybody has the most reason to have confidence in the flesh, I do. And let me tell you what my flesh was. I didn't list fornication and adultery. I listed my hard work trying to do it all right. And then what does he say in verse 7? But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, let me let me just stop real quick. Has anybody stopped and really thought about Paul's life? You remember all those years that he had put into obedience to the law and moving his way up? He was taught by Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he had moved his way up to the top of the heap in those who want to earn their salvation. When he put his faith in Christ, what happened to all of that? It was lost. Actually, he was rejected by his own people. Everywhere they went, they tried to kill him. He'd go to another town, they'd show up there and try to kill him. He'd go to another town, they'd show up there and try to kill him. All of that, he said, I gave it all up. I gave it all up. I'm putting no confidence in any of that. When I stand before God, I'm not going to pull back any of that to give myself some points. I gave it up because it's a waste of time. It was my effort. I now... Counted all his loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Look what he says here. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I don't even miss them. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Keep reading. And the power of his resurrection, keep reading, 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Look at what he says. Guys, I count that all loss, uh, all the loss is rubbish. I'm now pointing in this direction, and my focus is what? Jesus and him alone and his righteousness. Now, if anybody knew the temptation to do faith in Jesus plus what I do, Paul did. Because that's the only way he had functioned for his whole life. Now he was saying, it's nothing I do. It's all him. And not only that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, because of these great revelations that I received, remember he had been taken into third heaven, he said, God gave me a thorn in my side, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And I asked God three times to take it away. And God's answer was, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, as God said, my power will be made perfect or complete in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses. I will embrace my weaknesses because I want everything I get to come from Christ. We don't realize it, but in the church over the years, we have preached that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. But now that you're saved, here's what you have to do. You've heard it, haven't you? You've heard me talk about it before. You've got to come to Jesus. There's nothing you can do. He'll give you salvation. It's a gift. You just got to receive it in faith. You walk down the aisle and they say, great, here are your envelopes. Here, yeah. Here's a list of our committees. We'd like you to serve on a couple. Here's our service times. You're going to be here every time the door is open. And without realizing it, we have taught everybody. You trust Christ for salvation. Now you've got to do your part. How many of you grew up with preachers who said, because of all that Christ has done for you, you owe it to him to, and you can fill in the blank. Anybody ever heard that kind of preaching? Guess what? The preacher was telling you had to try to pay God back. It's a guilt trip. Paul says, I just want to know Christ. And I just want to follow Christ. And I love how he puts it next. Look at what he says, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Remember back in Ephesians 4, until means what? We're not there. Paul would never assume that he was there. Not that I have obtained, already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, I just can't wait till he just takes me home. And then I love how he puts this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise because you are going to. That's a part of this whole thing that God's designed called the church. God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. But look at how he described maturity. Here's your biblical definition. I want you to write in your notes or put it down however you want. Biblical maturity is moving forward toward Jesus in your walk with him at whatever level you are in your walk with Jesus Christ. If you're a new believer or you've been saved for 70 years, you are a mature believer if you move forward toward Jesus. The immature are the ones who keep Falling back. They're the ones who keep getting sucked back into the old stuff. Keep moving towards him. Yes, ma'am. Maturity as a follower of Jesus Christ is moving forward towards Jesus at whatever level you are in your walk with him. See, we think, well, that person's more mature than me. Not according to Paul. Whoever thinks this way is mature. Isn't that what he said? Whoever's mature is going to think like this. In other words, if you're straining toward more of Christ, man, that's mature. But I've only been saved for a year. Trust me. Take it from someone that sees a lot of Christians. That's mature. I've dealt with too many that think they're already there, just waiting for God to come get them. They're done. They've checked out. They think their only job now is to sit back and judge how everybody else is doing. Maturity is moving forward toward Christ. Oh, please don't hear me wrong. Are there going to be days that we sin? Are there going to be days that we doubt? Are there going to be days that we slip up? Yes, but we won't get sucked into it. There's a difference between being sucked into it and having a day where our flesh wins. 
I'm, don't hear me say that if you have a day, your flesh wins, you're immature. No, 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 no. Paul himself said, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. I'm still struggling with this body of flesh. And I'm so glad that Paul did say that. That's been such a help for me. Now, for years, people used to try to tell me, Jim, Paul was talking about his life before Christ. He was describing himself. He wasn't describing his relationship after Christ. And I started to believe it until one day it hit me. Wait a minute. Twice in that passage in Romans 7, Paul said this. Therefore, it is no longer I who do it when I sin. Wait a minute. When he says twice, it's no longer. There's a transition that has occurred. He's writing after salvation and he still struggles with the flesh, just like you and I do. But folks, there's a difference between tripping up and, and falling to the flesh and getting sucked back into the old way. You get sucked back into the other stuff. That's immaturity. Maturity is just moving forward, moving forward. All right. Now. Children are those who are tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Go back to Ephesians 4. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the false doctrines to watch out for, ways to watch out for false doctrines so that you won't be immature. Now, the reason I'm about to go into this section here is important, because in the full context of Ephesians 4, why or how has God designed it so that the children won't be tossed to and fro? What has God put in place to help you not be tossed to and fro. Apostles, man, you guys make me feel so good. Apostles, <laughs> prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers have been gifted to you for the purpose of equipping you for the work of the ministry. It's two things. Godly men who teach you the word of God and you putting it into practice as you exercise the gift God's given you, as you do the ministry God's put on your heart, as you plug together and we're part of the body, that will keep you from becoming immature. So my job as apostle slash prophet is to now kind of teach you to watch what to watch out for so that you won't get sucked into these things. So what, what types of false, teach, false teaching and deceitful scheming do we need to watch out for? Now, keep in mind, Paul doesn't give us specifics. We a lot of times wish he would. Would you just give us the names of the preachers that are good and the names of the preachers that are bad? Have you ever, I've had lots of pre pastor people come to me and say, Jim, please just tell me which ones to change the channel and which ones to stay on that channel. And I say, I ain't even going down that road. First of all, Paul didn't go down that road. Second of all, Last thing I need is to have it all turn into Jim now is determined who's false and who's not. Yes, ma'am. No, the word will be able to test and Well, exactly. And that's the whole thing. In the context, though, here, there are a couple of things that we can see. Definitely among all of it is one of the ways you'll know, recognize that what comes out of their mouth is true or false is if you know the scriptures. But at the same time, in the context here, there's a couple of things that Paul's been bringing out that if we look back at the whole context, you'll see it. Here, here's the first thing. Anything that opposes faith in Christ and harms the unity of the body and love. Any kind of teaching that opposes faith in Christ or also, as I put it here, harms the unity of the body and love. And I'll clarify that now. This is why Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into Jesus, who is the head. OK, that's the key to the whole thing. You need to make sure that the people you're listening to, Jim Johnson included, are speaking truth to you. And are they doing it in love? That's one of the ways, because God's purpose is to build you up, not tear you down. Jesus, when he corrects us and he convicts us of sin, never condemns. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Even the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, wasn't a question mark as to whether or not she was doing sin. What did he say? He says, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. Does anybody know what Jesus said next? Neither do I condemn you. Oh, go and stop sinning. He pointed out sin, but he did it in a way that was an encouragement. Folks, one of the ways you'll recognize the voice of God versus the voice of Satan, because Satan likes to pretend he's God, and he'll a lot of times talk like he's God. One of the ways you'll know is, is that when God speaks, when Jesus speaks, even when he's pointing out sin, it's in a way that encourages and actually points you in the direction where you need to go instead of tearing you down. When Jesus met back up with Peter after Peter denied him and Jesus said, do you really love me more than these? And Peter says, I do. Jesus did not say, then why did you deny me? 
How come you couldn't tell that girl that you believed me? That isn't what Jesus said at all, was it? But that's the kind of things we hear. Boy, if I really were a Christian, I wasn't embarrassed to Jesus. Why couldn't I tell my neighbor? Oh, I'm such a failure. That's not God talking. Jesus said, do you love me? Peter says, I do. He goes, well, let's get going from here. Let's move forward. Feed my sheep. Oh, by the way, if you remember, I told you a few days ago it was going to happen. And I told you back then, when you come back, strengthen the brothers. I see where we're going. And I found over the years that when I sin, God doesn't say you're horrible, you're no good, you're bad. He says, you don't need this. He'll say, I have better things for you. And I've learned to recognize he speaks truth, but he doesn't love. These preachers, there are a lot of them out there that love to preach love, but they don't speak any truth. There's one famous one out there who was interviewed. And this interviewer said, you get large masses of thousands of people that come to hear you preach. How, but I've never heard you preach on sin. This is what the preacher said. He said, the world is full of enough bad stuff. I just want to focus on the good. Well, folks, listen, how in the world can anybody be saved if we don't talk about sin? If we don't deal with sin, if we don't mention the fact that there's a hell, how can if you just focus on love, but don't talk about sin? You're not going to help them. You can't put a Band-Aid on cancer, folks. We need to speak the truth. But you know what? There are those who run to the other extreme. And they're so focused on truth. They don't care if you like it. They just want to tell you because they're right and you're wrong. By the way, along the same line of the fact that God does things different ways. Are there churches that are extremely legalistic, but God's using them? Yes. yes. Are there churches that have methods for evangelism and worship styles that make us uncomfortable, but God's using them? Yes. See, we have, we have we got to be willing to say, Lord, you want us to work toward unity in the faith. And unity in the faith means as long as they understand the essentials and they're preaching the truth, the fact that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ, even though they may go at it in a way that I'm not real comfortable with, I trust you because you're the one who's ultimately in charge of how we use our gifts and where we use our gifts and what the results are. And I just want to keep focusing on truth and doing it in love. So are they speaking the truth in love? And then... What are some telltale signs that the teaching or ministry may be a false teaching or a deceitful scheme? Here's the first one. Does this teacher slash ministry point you to the head, which is Jesus? Or does this teacher make themselves the focus? Or yourself the focus even. Yeah, where you become the focus of the, of, it's got to be Jesus. By the way, let me just say, there's a little aside. One of the ways you can tell that ministries or, or teachings that get into things of the Spirit are moving away from what the Bible teaches is when the Spirit becomes the focus. All right, if you look at the Scriptures, the Bible says the Holy Spirit's job is to bring glory to the Son. All right, so if the ministry focuses on the power of the Spirit, if the ministry focuses on, oh, spirit, oh, spirit, and the spirit is the focus, you got to watch out because the spirit's job is to bring glory to the son. The focus needs to be Jesus, not the spirit. Now, go to Acts chapter 14. Look what happened in Acts 14, verses 8 through 15. Now, keep in mind, the Holy Spirit is God, but in his role, he points people to Jesus. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 15. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, uh, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, wanting to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out men why are you doing these things we also are men of you sorry uh, men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and seen all that's in them when the, everybody wanted to say wow look at these guys their reaction was no 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 it's not about me we're men just like you that's why I've always told people I don't want to be called reverend 
I don't want you to think that there's a difference between me and you. I'm just like you. My role is preaching and teaching, but it doesn't make me closer to God, even though I'm on a stage and I've got about a foot on you. It doesn't make me closer to God. If this ministry is putting a lot of attention onto that man, be careful. Be careful. Does the ministry see itself as a part of the larger whole of the body of Christ? Or does it seek to form a separate purer sect. Let me say that to you again. Does this ministry or teaching see itself as a part of the larger whole of the whole body of Christ? Do they see themselves a part of what God's doing in the body or do they see them seek to form a separate purer sect? In other words, are they teaching and saying we've got it right, the rest of them are wrong? If they seek to separate you from the body of Christ, be careful. Be careful. I don't have the time um, to go there, but in Acts chapter 20 and verses 28 through 30, if you want to go there later, Paul warned the Ephesian elders. He said, after I leave, there are going to be wolves that come in among the flock, and they're going to try to lead people away after them. So be careful of that. Folks, this is why sound Bible teaching and preaching is necessary in order to equip the church and protect it from the many winds of false doctrine out there. Churches today are truly hurting for good, spirit-filled, solid Bible preaching and teaching. If anybody's been going around, um, you probably know what I'm talking about. The church today is really hurting for good, spirit-filled, solid Bible preaching and teaching. I've got three reasons as to partially why. There's more than this, but there's three main reasons that I really feel like God wants me to emphasize in the time we have left. Here's the first one. As we've already said before, part of the reason why we don't have really good preaching and teaching in our, in our churches today is uh, churches expect the pastor to do more than he's supposed to. You remember back in Acts chapter 6 when they came with the problem of the feeding of the widows, the response of the apostles was where it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. We're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. They were wise enough to not let the church write their job description and they were to focus on feeding on the Word of God, feeding on the Word of God, feeding on the Word of God. Please, I don't want you to hear this about me, but people have said, Jim, how come you know so much of the Bible? Part of the reason is, is I'm not a pastor anymore. Because I get to feed on the Word. I get to feed on the Word. That's part of the reason why we don't have as good a preaching as we, as we need and teaching in our churches. Another reason is this. We think that a seminary training makes a good teacher when it's a spiritual gift. I mean, let me just say it straight up and I'm gonna show you scripture that illustrates that. But folks, how many of us think someone feels called, they need to go off to school and learn how to be a preacher? How many of you have heard over the years how you had a guy in the pulpit who probably wasn't that good of a preacher and we'll get together and send him off to a class where he can learn how to preach better? Folks, that's because we keep looking at things with man's eyes instead of looking at what the scripture says and being God-centered. Go, go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 6. Second Timothy 1, verse 6, Paul's talking to Timothy. And he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says, when I laid hands on you. And when you were saved and sent out to go in the ministry that God has for you, God gave you a gift. And he didn't say you need to go to class to get make it better. He said, fan it into flame. It's already there. I thank God over the years for those who have let me fan into flame the gift that God's given me. Oh, there are some days that it was a, barely a spark. I remember one time when I first started preaching, I literally, this is at First Baptist in the Atlantic. I was youth pastor in 1988 and I used to preach and Teresa was young back then and she probably remembers this. But still young. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I literally, this is how I preached and I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly how I preached the whole half an hour of my sermon. I could not stop walking. I still move around, but it was, you're going to get sick after a while here. But I just kept going. Finally, one lady came up to me one night and she said, Jim, I love listening to you, but I got to close my eyes. She goes, I, look, I feel like I'm watching a caged tiger. She said, I want to nail one of your feet to the floor 
And you can walk in a circle all you want, but she said, all that walking's got to go. You know, I, I got to fan into flame the gift that God had given me. I didn't get this from a course. Part of the problem is, is we think that a seminary degree is going to make the preacher a better preacher. Now, there's nothing wrong with seminary if God calls you to it because there's some valuable things that you can learn. A lot of things I got out of seminary were not, what not to do. But folks, let your preacher teachers spend their time in the Word of God. And let the body do the stuff the body's supposed to do. And you will reap the benefits. Please don't think that they just need more learning. They need more time with Jesus. To fan into flame the gift that they've been given. And the third reason is the teaching of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. And this might be the first most important. I don't know. The teaching of the Word of God and the preaching of God's Word has lost its importance in the church today as other things have taken more importance. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 2, we're not going to turn there now, but in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, the new believers there, the church there in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They have devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to prayer and the breaking of the bread, which is the Lord's Supper. And in that church that God was moving mightily in, they didn't have a whole lot of programs, folks. They didn't have a place where they could all hardly meet. And the place they all met was in the temple courts where everybody else was doing their stuff. They met each other's homes. They ate together and they loved on each other. But all they focused on were praying together, enjoying time together, taking the Lord's Supper together to remind themselves of why they were together. And they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. In our churches today, we unfortunately think that feeding people the word of God is going to make the crowds go away. That's why in our churches, we're more focused on all the other stuff in hopes that they'll come. But we think once someone stands up there and says, open your Bibles, that that's going to... Folks, do you realize what we've just said about the word of God and God speaking? We say it has no power. That's a good point. It has not lost its importance. It's lost its priority. So, folks, do we make it our ministry now to go get this problem fixed? No. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 16. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm just pointing these things out to you as a loving teacher to say, be careful but don't sit around talking about how messed up the church is. See, one of the things I've learned over the years is, um, well, let's put it this way. When Paul went after the church to persecute it, does anybody know what Jesus said when he met up with, Jesus, when he met up with Paul on the road to Damascus? He said, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? I'm the Lord Jesus whom you're persecuting. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not going after you. I'm going after these people. If you've done it to them, you've done it to me. In the same way, God's had to teach me as well. When I was younger in my preaching, I would see these things that God would show me that needs to be corrected in the church. And I spent too much time bashing the church. And Jesus took me aside one day and said, that's my bride. You don't go beat up my bride. You go do what I tell you to do and you teach my bride and you love my bride. You speak the truth, but you do it in love. You don't go beat up my bride. And folks, if it isn't your responsibility to worry about what the church looks like, stop worrying about what the church looks like. You understand what I'm saying? The church has been given people by God whose role it is to oversee the body. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. They've been given that responsibility before God. And they will stand before God one day as to how they shepherded God's flock. If you have not been called by God to shepherd the flock, stop talking about what you think the church ought to be. That's not your job. Haven't you ever had to tell your kids when they started to correct the other children, you're not the parent? I say this to you in love. You're not the parent. Don't sit around saying the church ought to be if that's not your role.
You just do your part and find the joy and the peace that comes from being used of God in the area that he's called you, whether you're five or two or one. If it's buying Bibles in a thrift store to be sent to Wisconsin to be shipped to Africa, go do it and have fun. Let me pray for us. Father, one day, one day we'll reach this level of mature manhood in the fullness of Christ. And as we've already seen, we won't get there in this life, but you tell us not to use that as an excuse for idleness. If we're mature, we're just going to keep seeking you and following you. And Lord, forgive us for becoming like kids who have tried to be the parents when that's not maybe our role. And Lord, put on our heart what it is that you want to do through us. And may we trust that you're going to build your church. And Lord, I thank you that I get the benefit in my travels of seeing your, you at work all over this world. And it's mind blowing all the places where you're working. And in many places, it even looks like you're overlapping. It's such an awesome thing. We have a tendency, Lord, sometimes to, in our areas of ministry, think that we're the only ones left like Elijah did. Encourage us in the fact that that's not our responsibility, but to just do what it is you've asked us to do. And Lord, as we've spent a long time in this passage, may the depth of these truths sink into our hearts. May we understand that there are those you've given us as parents to equip us to do the work of the ministry. And then we'll get to that point where we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching. Because we'll be using the gifts that we have. We'll be ministering to the body in the way you've designed. And you'll be using those you've called and gifted to kind of lead us and direct us back to you. Who is the head? Lord, keep me because my flesh is just as alive as anybody else's. Keep me from seeking man's applause or man's approval. May I just continue to do what it is you've asked me to do and leave the results to you. And Lord, if you choose to come and take me home before the rapture and people gather at a casket or a graveside, my heart's true desire is that people could say, Jim pointed me to Jesus. That's all I want to hear. I pray this in your name. Amen.